more than once that, uh, well, I, I, let me put it this way. I've been asked, please speak softly so you won't interrupt my nap. And I've been told, speak loud so I can stay awake. So I don't know which side of that you're on. Uh, I told the, the, the one who said the first thing, I said, I'm going to have to speak loud or you might have to come up here and wake me up. So uh, uh, I think all of us can uh, appreciate the fact that we've been together for a while uh, that we've had a, uh, a good feeling morning spiritually and physically. And uh, maybe our bodies might uh, uh, encourage us to, uh, uh, to take things easy before long. But let's try to delay that for just a little while and turn our attention once more to God's Word and uh, enjoy the, the, the beautiful songs that we've sung, the prayers uh, that we've participated in. And, and I hope that you will appreciate and enjoy and, and benefit from the, uh, the time we spend uh, in the book of Philippians this afternoon. Turn with me, if you will, to Philippians chapter 3. And we'll start use as our text verses 13 and 14. Though the general context is considerably wider than that. And we'll look at other parts of it as we, as we go along. Philippians may well be the most personal of all of Paul's letters to churches. He lets it be known that Philippians is one of his favorite congregations, that he feels indebted to them because of the close ties they've had with him, partnering with him in his work, praying for him, seeing after him, sending him gifts, uh, contributing to his expenses, uh, praying for him and making sure that, uh, that his every need was, was looked after as best he could. He, he loves them for that. At the same time says, it's not just because of what I get from you, but because of what you mean to me and of what I obviously mean to you. In the third chapter of Philippians, he talks about his uh, conversion in a rather uh, indirect way. He talks about the things that he has given up in order to serve Christ and the things that he longs to accomplish. And we want to focus on the second part of that in particular uh, for this uh, short time that we have this afternoon. Read with me in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended... But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are, behind, are, are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul is our example in many, many ways. We admire his scholarship. We admire his love for the lost. We admire the gospel that he preached and the effectiveness with which he preached it. We admire his penitent heart, acknowledging the enormity of his sins and his great desire for God to forgive him of those sins and his gratitude uh, for those things. And there's so much else. Paul's dedication to preaching the gospel everywhere, but especially in places where it had never been heard before. We admire Paul, and for many good reasons. An athlete familiar to many of us here in the state of Alabama, Charles Barkley, during his uh, uh, days of fame and glory, as such as they were, made the statement rather famously, I'm not a role model. Don't get, let your kids pattern their lives after me. Well, Mr. Barclay, I hate to tell you this, but we don't get to choose whether or not we're going to have an impact on other people. People are watching us. People are listening to us. People whom we may not know may nevertheless be affected by the way we live, by the things we say and do, by the message that we present or fail to present. That's not our choice. 
I heard as a boy the sermons preached and illustrated in which we were told that a, a flock of sheep, if you led them through a gate one at a time and you held a stick up in front of the, the first one, he would jump over it. You could then remove the stick and every sheep would jump at the same spot that the one before it jumped. I've never tried that. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but it illustrated a great lesson. In a flock of a hundred sheep doing that, how many of those sheep are leaders? We automatically would think, well, the first one. No, 99 of them are leaders. Each sheep followed the one immediately in front of him. We are leaders just like we are all followers. Somebody is setting an example for you. Somebody is watching you as an example. And we don't get to choose. They don't ask us, can I do that? They often don't tell us that they're doing that. But we have to live our lives with an awareness. Paul understood that. He said, in contrary to the statement we quoted earlier, he said, be ye imitators of me, even as I also am of Christ Jesus. If you want to follow me as long as I'm following Christ, have at it. That's good. It's good for both of us. For me to know that somebody is watching, for you to have somebody to watch that is trying the best as they can to be a Christian and to be a faithful follower of Christ. And so as we look at Paul's example today, we're going to focus on this attitude that he has, that he exhorts us to have later on in the chapter, just like him. And that is the attitude of being single-minded in pursuit of the upward call of God. This one thing I do. In this respect, at least, the Apostle Paul was a specialist. Some people can be multitaskers. I can in some respects. I can eat a sandwich and read a book at the same time. I don't know. I can even watch a ball game like I did last night and read a book uh, and, and, and keep up mostly with what both of them are doing. Uh, but I'm not a multitasker in everything. And probably most of us are not great multitaskers in most respects of our lives. We do better if we can focus on one thing at a time. And Paul basically is saying, in this respect, I'm a, I'm, I'm a single-minded person. This is what I'm trying to do. This is my top priority. This is my foremost goal. Now, if somebody asks you outside the context of church, what is your top priority? What is your foremost goal? What's most important to you in your lives? You might say, men especially might say, my job, my career. Or you might say, my education, if you're younger. Or you might say, my family. And if you know that you're being asked by a Christian, and this might have spiritual application, you're liable to say, well, I want to go to heaven. And I hope you would say that, and I hope that when you say that, you'll be accurate that you indeed do focus on spiritual things more than anything else. Paul said in the next letter in our Bibles that is attributed to him, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, If then you were raised with Christ, if you have been baptized and buried in his name into his death and have been raised with him to walk in newness of life, that's what he's saying, if you're a Christian, Seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What ought our number one priority to be? Well, going to heaven. 
Our number one priority ought to be pleasing God, serving Him. As Paul puts it in Philippians 13, uh, uh, 3, 13 and 14, seeking the prize that is offered by Christ Jesus. Can we be a little bit more specific and ask what is that prize? What are we really talking about? Now, I've already used the phrase going to heaven or seeking to be pleasing to God, and those are accurate descriptions, but they're somewhat stereotypical, somewhat trite in, in, in popular usage. Uh, we say it often without a whole lot of feeling or emotions involved in those things. Do you want to go to heaven? Of course, but probably not right this minute. You know, I'd rather wait a little while. And so we pass it off and almost diminish it at the same time that we're trying to acknowledge it. Paul identifies his foremost goal, first of all, as reaching forward to the things which are ahead. Then he calls it the goal of the prize. And finally, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Have you ever sat by the phone waiting on the call? Might have been the call back after an interview for a job. It might be call of news of a child or a grandchild. I can remember sitting in the lobby of the hospital in those days a long time ago. You weren't in the room of delivery. And uh, in the particular hospital that my son was born in, you weren't even in a special father's room. Uh, we weren't allowed anywhere close to where things were happening. We were out in the front lobby. And they announced it over the loudspeaker. Mr. Brooks, you have a fill-in-the-blank. I was not the first one called. There were several others in that room waiting for the call. And, and several of them were told, Mr. Jones, you have a boy. Mr. Williams, you have a boy. Mr. Jackson, you have a boy. I looked at my mother-in-law and said, they're going to give away all the boys before they get to us. <laughs> but they did it. And we got the call, and it was a wonderful call. It would have been a wonderful call if it had been a girl. We, got, we had two girls later, and I was just as happy. Uh, in fact, I was hoping that they would be girls. Uh, one boy was enough. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't say that. You, you don't ever tell him I said that. Uh, we, uh, but, but you understand what I mean. There's something about the call. It may be acceptance into a university. It may be talking to someone that you've asked an important question. Will you marry me? And they say, let me think about it for a minute. That's, that's a scary moment. But you wait for that answer. It's important to be called. I was never a great athlete. I was never a good athlete. And when we had pickup games at school and captains were chosen and Teams were then picked one, one at a time. I'll take him and I'll take him. I was always one of those last couple or three that was picked. I never got around to the fact that, uh, never got to the point that there was an odd number and somebody said, well, you'll have to wait till next time. I always got picked eventually. And it was always a good thing. We love the call. The call Paul is talking about is the call of God. The upward call of God. Jesus describes it as the judgment scene, when we will be told, enter in, ye faithful of my Father. God wants us in heaven with Him. God is calling us to come into relationship and to fellowship with Him so that when the time comes that we enter that area of judgment and of, and of sentencing, if we can call it that, or of decision-making for our ultimate destination, He can greet us with a smile a warm hug or 
handshake or whatever the appropriate gesture might be and say, your room is right around the corner. Paul says, I'm longing for that day. We depersonalize it. I want to go to heaven. Well, what's heaven like? I don't know. How are you going to get there? I don't know. But when we think of it in personal affection, I have a call coming from God. I have a Father that loves me, that wants me to come home, who is ready to stand at the door and open it and say, come on in. I could relate to that. I can understand what that means. Paul understood what that means. And he says, I'm longing for that day, for the prize of the upward call of God. He refers to that prize again in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, passage, or chapter 4, excuse me, a passage that we're all very familiar with. Uh, it is written in some of the last words that we have from the pen of Paul as far as we know. He says in verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. This is several years after the writing of the Philippian letter. And he says, Now it's time for me to go. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There's a great day coming. A day of welcome, a day of rejoicing, a day of entrance into the kingdom of God for all of eternity. Paul says, I am doing everything I can. I'm forgetting about everything else in order that I may gain that prize. He also refers to it as uh, the, uh, uh, as the prize of, of, of Christ or the crown of Christ as we have referred to there in, uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 4. How did Paul seek that prize? What did the apostle do in order to assure as best he could the attainment of that prize? Now we can talk about the gospel and obedience to the gospel, the, what we sometimes call the plan of salvation. We can talk about faith and confession and repentance and, and baptism for the remission of sins and all of those are appropriate and all of those things Paul did. But Paul talks in, in more generalities or more in terms of principles here and he identifies certain things that he saw as necessary for the attainment. First of all, he says he forgot the things of his past. Go back to the uh, earlier part of this context. Uh, in verse 8, no, let's start in verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ." And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. First of all, Paul said, I forget what is in my past, both good and bad. In the earliest verses of chapter 3, he recounts his physical attainments. As a, as a Jew, he is of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As for righteousness, he is 
he was rather a Pharisee, one of the most righteous, as they dealt uh, with it, as they, as they felt about it, one of the most righteous of the sects. One pledged to keep the law in every detail to the utmost of one's ability. As for zeal for God, he was a persecutor of the church. Paul did everything he could to be found as a good Israelite, a good member of the Jewish faith, but he learned that was not sufficient. It is not about me, it's about Jesus Christ. It's not about what I do, it's about what God has done for me. Paul learned that lesson, so he said, I forgot all of that. All of those things that I might count as good, count as credits, I I did away with. I'm not saved by works of my own, but by the love of God, the grace of God, that I access through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so, many of us can look at what we have done. We think about how long we've been members of the Lord's Church, how faithfully we have attended all the services, how early in life we were baptized, how much we have contributed on a regular basis, how faithful our family is in Christ, and on and on and on we may go. But when it all comes to it, it's not about us. It's not about what we have done in terms of merit or deserving things. Our hope is in Jesus, His blood, His death, His love for us. And until we have accepted that, humbling ourselves and asking for His mercy, we have accomplished nothing. But it's not just the bad thing or the good things that Paul says, I forget. He also forgets the bad things of his past. We've heard many people say over the years, God just would never forgive me. I've done too much bad. I'm too bad a sinner. There's just not enough grace to cover my sins. And those who say that either are unwilling to believe it or simply don't know what the Scripture teaches. Paul says, this is a faithful saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He was a persecutor of the church. He was a denier of Christ Jesus one who sought to to wipe the mention of his name from the Jewish race, from the Jewish people. And he never forgot that in a physical sense. But he was able to live it down. He was able to overcome it and to recognize the forgiveness that God had given him, the grace and the love and the mercy that he had received. And so in that sense, he did put it behind him. He forgot the bad. There's nothing that we have done that God will not forgive us of if we are faithful in Christ, if we believe in Him, confess Him, and obey His, His gospel. We must never lose sight of that fact. So first of all, Paul sought the prize by forgetting his past. He forgot his sufferings. He forgot his sins. He forgot his accomplishments, remembering only what Jesus had done for him. It is not about us. It's about God. It's about God's love and God's grace. Secondly, he set a goal. Look at verse 14 once again. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We began by saying we were going to talk about Paul's ultimate priority. What it was most important in his life. Above all else, he wanted to please God to achieve salvation by, faith, by his faith in Jesus. Nothing would interfere with that in his life. Nothing was more important than that. And nothing made him forget that, even for a moment. You remember when he talks about his love for his Jewish 
brothers and sisters and how much you wish that, that they would receive the gospel in Romans chapter 10. I could wish, I could almost wish, he says, that I myself could be lost if it would bring about the salvation of the Jews. The key word there is almost. The next most important thing to Paul was saving other people. But he never put that ahead of his own salvation. He understood until we have confidence in Christ, until we are willing to do everything for Jesus Christ, how can we call on other people to make that same decision? How can we ask others to put themselves second and others second, that they love that is second? As Jesus said, if a man does not hate his father and mother and the rest of his family and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. How can we ask others to do that if we have not done it ourselves? His most important objective in all of his life was to be saved. And that, again, must be something we never subjugate to anything else. How do you reflect your priorities in your life? How do you demonstrate to others what is most important? By what we say, the things that we choose to talk about, the clothes we wear, most of us could identify an Alabama or an Auburn or a Tennessee or a Mississippi State fan uh, pretty, pretty much most days of, of, of the week because they're going to be wearing their, uh, the, their team shirts a lot of the time or the caps or have the license plate on the car or, or so to speak. We demonstrate what we care about. We have pictures of our grandchildren. You ladies are especially prone to do that. Uh, we have... Uh, uh, slogans and logos about our hobbies or about our occupations plastered to our cars in various places. We show in many ways things that we care about. How do we demonstrate our ultimate goal? Most of us believe that it is not necessary, necessary nor is it always productive to go about waving Bibles and saying hallelujah all the time to all of our neighbors that has a limited ability to attract people's positive attention. And most of us do not choose to do that. But does that mean those things are not important to us? And that there are not other ways in which we can make it very evident that we do believe in God, that we love Jesus Christ and His church, that religion is something that is foremost in our lives, and that our goal cannot be defined in earthly terms. There are many ways, mostly by the character by which we live. Peter has an interesting statement in 1 Peter chapter 2 where he exhorts his brethren who are facing persecution Beloved, this is verse 11, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers... Now, let me stop there. Paul is writing to an audience which is being maligned as those despicable Christians. We pick up hints throughout the New Testament that there were different accusations made in the Roman world. Christians were sometimes called atheists because they wouldn't confess the divinity of Caesar. They were called criminal, or called uh, uh, cannibals because they 
met in dark places and ate blood and, and, and flesh, the Lord's Supper. They were called social revolutionaries because they taught better conditions for the poor and the elderly and the, and, 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 uh, the sick. There were many such, you know, in, in the book of Acts, we have the accusation, those who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Criminals did not have a good reputation in general. So he says, live in such a way before the, gen- the, the unbelievers that when they call you unbeliever, when they call you evil because of your faith, when they say bad things about Christianity, now notice what it says, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. I hate Christianity, but I'm glad you're my neighbor. Isn't that the way that translates? Christianity is a false doctrine, but you sure are nice to live by. There are many ways we can show our faith in Christ and our priority by the morality that we exemplify, by the good we do to others, by our refusal to participate in evil practices, and especially to take vengeance and reprisal for harm done to us. Paul says that he set a goal and stayed faithful to that goal. Thirdly, Paul was consistent. He pressed on continuing steadfastly in what he was doing. Notice not only in verse 14, but uh, uh, in in the the next couple of verses as well, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. It's not over till it's over. It's a famous saying of a previous generation sports star, and yet there's a lot of truth to that. Paul impressed me in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy when he asked Timothy to come to him quickly and gave a list of things he wanted Timothy to bring for him. Now, he has already said, the time of my departure is near. I'm going to die soon. But then he says, come, come quickly, bring my cloaks, bring some of my companions, and above all, bring the books, and especially the parchments. Paul, why are you still reading? Why are you still studying? You're an old man. You've done all the work you're going to be allowed to do. You are, you are not ever going to make another mission trip. And yet you still want the books. You still want the papers. It's not over till it's over. As long as there was life, there was an interest in spiritual matters. There was an interest in communicating and corresponding with those whom he loved about the truths of God. There was an interest in reading Scripture studying it, pondering it, reading letters from from his brothers and and fellow apostles. No doubt there was much else that Paul would like to have time to do and would spend his time in doing. He pressed on. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse uh, 58. uh, Continue to do good works, knowing that whatever we do, uh, we will win the prize if we faint not. We must never stop serving God. There is no retirement from our occupation of being Christians. 
We don't leave Jasper and move to Florida and put our Christianity on the shelf and say, I've done enough. God will have to take me as I used to be. It doesn't work that way. We continue to serve Him. We continue to be accountable for the opportunities that He gives us. We continue to have those opportunities and have those responsibilities until death do us part. Remember the, uh, the, the, the repeated phrase in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 in the letters to the seven churches? Jesus promises blessings to those who overcome, and sometimes He adds to those who are faithful until death and keeps my works until the end. That's the promise, and that's the condition, the terms of the promise. Now he goes on, and we just read verses 15 and 16. We've seen what Paul does. He set goals, he pressed on, uh, he, he, he counted what was behind him as loss in order that he might get something far greater. But how do we win the prize? In verses 15 and 16, he applies it to us. First of all, he says, we should seek maturity. Let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. Grow up. Have a spiritual mindset. Learn that there are things more important than what you've got to do on the job or what you're going to do this weekend on your days off. Let's be mature, spiritually mature, having the mind of Christ, as we read about in Philippians chapter 2, verses, verses 4 and 5. Paul says, seek maturity. Many people remain immature, especially in spiritual matters, all of their life. They simply cannot plan or do not want to plan far into their future. They demand immediate gratification. We talked about the problem that many people have with delayed gratification as a motivating factor. Don't talk to me about what might come about someday. I want it right now. I want it in my hands that I can see it and feel it and enjoy it now. That's a mark of immaturity. Children say, I can't wait until Christmas. Well, I got news for you. You got to. Uh, there's no other way for it to come except when it's in its right time. And, and the same is true with our spiritual rewards. So let us be mature. Learn patience. And learn that waiting is not just a matter of filling time, but it's a matter of being active, of pursuing our goal, as Paul describes it. Second, we must have the right mindset. Paul calls it, have this mind. Have the same kind of attitude about these things that I have. In, in uh, chapter 2, he talked about having the mind of Christ, which was displayed by the sacrifice Jesus made as he left heaven and came to earth to take on our life, our, our type of life, our, our species, and learn not only obedience, but obedience to the ultimate end of suffering and even death. We must be able to humble ourselves, to sub submit ourselves to others, and to put others first. Yeah. Back in the old joy bus riding days, we used the acronym JOY, Jesus first, others second, yourself last. That's not popular anymore, but it's still true. That's the attitude that we ought to have, the attitude that Jesus taught the attitude that Paul exemplified. Live in order to help others, and that is the best way to receive reward and blessings ourselves. Jesus put it this way, he who would lose his life will find it. Live for others to live best for oneself. 
And thirdly, he says, walk by the rules. Verse 16, nevertheless, to the degree that we have attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Rule here means standard. There are standards that we must adhere to. There's a right way and a wrong way. Many wrong ways. Only one right way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. John chapter 14, as you know, verse 6. And again, Paul said, or Peter rather said in, in uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, There is no other name under heaven whereby we might be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. This is the only way. Are Christians exclusive? Yes, we are. We believe that we know the truth, that God has revealed His truth through His Son, and that salvation is possible only through His Son. Does that make us believe that we are better than anyone else? No. It means that God has given us a state of righteousness in which He has forgiven us of our sins, but that is available to everybody. It's not exclusive to us. Only it is exclusive to those who will submit themselves to the will of God, have faith in God and in His Son Jesus, and obey the gospel of Christ. We must walk by the rules. There are ways that we should live. In His final words, as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And then after He describes baptism and says more about that, He says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So all the teachings of Jesus are to be applied to everyone who becomes a Christian. All of us are to live by those rules, by those standards, and will be measured and judged by them. In Revelation chapter 20, the books will be opened, and we will be judged by the things written in the book with the added Benefit that there will be another book open, the, the Lamb's Book of Life. And even if we fail the test of the first books, which I believe simply are the Bible, God's laws written for us, preserved for us, and applicable to us, but even if we have failed to keep those perfectly, and we will have, if our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, if we have depended upon Him for mercy and forgiveness, we will still receive the prize. What is your goal? What is most important in life to you? Are you demonstrating that it is spiritual things, that you, above all else, you want to be pleasing to God? You want forgiveness for your sins? You want to go to heaven? Are you demonstrating that, if that is your goal? Are you, are you confident of that? And, and, and do others who know you realize that that is the truth? If you have questions, if you know that those answers cannot be given positively, affirmatively, then perhaps you would like to respond to the invitation this afternoon, and we invite you to do so. If you are not a Christian, we urge you to come confessing the name of Jesus, repenting of your sins, submitting to him in baptism that you might be buried into his death and raised into a new life like he lived after his death. If you are a Christian that has not walked perfectly, you have committed sins that God has not yet forgiven you of, you've not asked for that forgiveness, then we urge you to come calling on that promise. If we confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive them. Won't you come as we stand?